in terms of like the economist stuff and finance, like I just, I'm just naturally fascinated by that. Yeah. So I just spent a lot of time reading. This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by one of Vancouver's most popular real estate agents, real estate bloggers, and most popular voices in real estate in this city. He's appeared on BNN, CBC, CTV, and a station that I contribute to a lot, CKNW Global News. He's a contributor to BC Business Magazine, while also providing advisory services to hedge funds, investment advisors, and real estate developers. His business is among the top 10% of Greater Vancouver Realtors. His weekly newsletter reaches several thousand readers. And if you're among them and this is your first time listening, then thank you for joining me. I'm thrilled that he's here. My esteemed guest, he is Steve Suretsky. Steve, how are you? Good. Wow. Making me sound good. Thanks for having me on. I'm hyped oh. to have you here. <laughs> Very excited for this. Wow. You are an interesting character to me in the Vancouver real estate analysis scene because you're a realtor, but you're very much an economist as well, at least in the way you present your analysis on the market. How can you sort of balance the two? So how can you give me a fair, objective analysis of what the market's doing, but then also try to sell me a condo in the same breath? <laughs> it's a good question. I get that a lot. Um, yeah, I have a lot of guys that uh, are even, you know, people in the industry mm -hmm. um, that are like, well, I don't get it. This guy must not sell anything. Like, <laughs> he's got this view. He's saying this. Mm -hmm. And like, does he have a part-time job? What What is he doing? Um, but yeah, no, for me, it's just, I my goal is just putting out value. Mm -hmm. And um, at the end of the day, you might like that view. You might like that data. You might not. But at the end of the day, this is, this is, what I'm seeing, this is what I feel, this is what I think. And uh, if you find that this provides some value to you, then great. And if not, that's that's fine too. Sure. And I find that uh, all my clients that come to me come through, uh, you know, my media channel and uh, they ultimately say, you know, I know that the market is looking maybe volatile or that it might be overinflated or that prices could really drop. But at the end of the day, you know, I want to buy, I need a home and you seem like a, a honest, trustworthy guy. I like the way you approach the business. Mm -hmm. You know, can you help me out? And so, you know, for me, that's that's been great. And, and on the flip side, there's definitely cases where I do lose business and be like, well, I, I don't want you to sell my home. You know, you're too negative, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever. So, and, and that's totally fine by me because at the end of the day, I'm just, I'm in this for like the long haul. Yeah. And uh, I'm trying to build brand. And I feel that in order to build brand, I think you have to be authentic. Sure. And, and do you think that plays into maybe the larger reputation of the industry? Because it seems like you are doing things differently. Yeah, I think, oh, I mean, I think that in any industry, I think there's maybe, I don't know if I'd call them like lies, but maybe not truths. Sure. And well, they're trying to sell you something. Yeah, they're right? trying to sell you something. It could be in the fitness industry. It could mm -hmm. be in whatever industry. Uh, but it's certainly in real estate, I think there's a lot of myths and 
and misnomers that are said, uh, you know, to to move the market. And I understand if you're running a a large multi million dollar business, um, sometimes it might be in your best interest to say those things or sure. to try to promote a certain image. Um, but yeah, for me, it's always just I don't know, I think like that was just how I sort of was grown up and raised to. You know, I like people, and I, I'm a very honest. And you, you can you can ask my girlfriend. I, I'm a terrible liar, so <laughs> I, I, at this point, I've just stopped trying, and I just sure. I just speak my mind. Yeah. Well, we have a lot to cover, but I want to start by figuring out what happened over the past ten to fifteen years in Vancouver, because some people blame zoning, some people blame foreign investment, some people blame money laundering and dirty money or hot money. I want to do things a little differently, and I want to give you my layman or laybro account of what I think happened, or at least what I've sort of gathered from the conversations in this city. And I want to let you know that I'm not married to this haphazard analysis, but I want you to listen to it and tell me if it's completely wrong or if there's some truth to it or what the truth is in your analysis. Yeah, yeah, fire away. All right. So 2008, markets collapse, interest rates super low. Vancouver, great place to live. The Olympics are coming. We become a hub for a global investor class. So money starts pouring in, and not just from China, but from everywhere. And suddenly, luxury condos become the financial product of choice. They don't require upkeep like a single-family home. You can piece out millions of dollars better than you could with a lot of single-family homes. And it's not just investor money. It's also hot money. Money that's procured in a way that's not above board, internationally and domestically. The real estate development industry sees this and they go, this is the best, let's go all in. And they just start dropping towers all over Vancouver. You know, the 500 square feet suicide suites, because who cares? It makes the most money. Some might argue that draconian zoning also made towers the most profitable type of development. But with resources being finite as they are, the development industry capital and their labor disproportionately focused on building that kind of development. Because again, profit maximization. So we go through almost a decade of building for investors, not people who live and work here. Land values skyrocket, build, 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 more, more, more. And now Vancouver is largely luxury condos and single family homes both of which are unattainable unless you're super wealthy or have some equity in the market already. So we've kind of found ourselves in a pickle. We've overbuilt luxury supply, and we've completely neglected to build the types of homes that people need to live in. So Tamara Taggart was on this program, and she said, the dream to save up your money and buy a home with your new family is dead. But the story doesn't end there, because we had a bunch of taxes to curb speculation China started enforcing capital controls to prevent money from leaving their country. Global credit started drying up. The federal government here decided to implement a mortgage stress test to ensure that buyers of new properties or properties in general, I should say, could actually meet their mortgage payments within an interest rate increase of 2%. And now a lot of developers are caught on the wrong side of land and development deals. They bought land high, but prices are coming down. They're stopping construction. They're begging municipalities for rebates and discounts because they want to build purpose-built rentals, I should say. But the whole thing feels like a big scam because it sounds like a big bailout for developers. That's the narrative that I hear the most, and I'm sort of putting that all together. 
That's the narrative that a lot of my friends espouse. That's the popular narrative on Twitter. How accurate is that? <laughs> I think it's pretty accurate. Um, I think that's a pretty good uh, generalization of the f- sort of how things shaped up and played out. Um, I think there's obviously a lot of technical nuances in there sure. um, that I would probably add to. And Please. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, first off, uh, you ha- I always look at the markets. So Vancouver real estate, although it's de- definitely a global city, um, but it's not, it doesn't work in a vacuum. So mm-hmm. there's all these pieces globally that impact Vancouver real estate. And there's things like, I know that we say it's a local market, but ultimately it is impacted uh, by so many factors. And so when you look at the 2008 financial crisis is you had all these, well, the good chunk of the world, their housing markets just imploded. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you had was this uh, dele- household deleveraging amongst these um, there was a large credit buildup, and in the U.S., we saw home prices fall exponentially. Parts of Europe uh, fell as well, and households basically deleveraged. They paid down their debts. They're overly indebted. They, you know, took on a lot of mortgage debt. Right. And what happened was they, you know, they started repairing their balance sheet, paying down their debt, you know, foreclosing on homes, et cetera. What happened in Canada was there was actually people don't understand or realize there was actually a sixty-nine billion dollar bailout um, that was f- facilitated. Um, through the Canadian government and through CMHC, basically buying up a lot of the bad mortgage debt uh, on Canadian off Canadian banks' books. Oh, interesting. So this okay. basically allowed uh, Canadian lending. If you actually look, you can like it's the thing is like it's so visible because you can actually just look at the data mm-hmm. um, that lending never actually really froze in Canada. We went through this sort of like six month liquidity squeeze where it was like everyone's like, oh my gosh, like is the banking system going to fail? And then after that, after this sort of six to nine months, things just kept going. And and you can actually go back and look at it. Uh, you know, a lot of the bank economists were talking about it at the time, saying this is we're kind of nervous about this kind of lending. We're basically just jamming through all these mortgages. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, zero percent down, et cetera. So, anyways, long what, story. What year was this? Uh, to basically in two thousand nine. Okay. So coming so right out of after. that, so basically the. The Canadian solution to the financial crisis was like, oh my gosh, like we need to keep this thing going. Yeah. We need to just keep firing in mortgages and con- con- convince people to borrow money. So there was really like very mild recession in Canada, whereas a lot of these countries, uh, as, as we're well aware, mm-hmm. went through a lot of pain. And it was, so it was a similar thing in Australia. They brought in a lot of mechanisms to con- to uh, entice household lending. That's why Australia is where they are today. Okay. Um, so I know we get compared to them a lot. Sure. Um, so yeah. Anyways, long story short, that sort of created this. I think this this safety net that well, Vancouver real estate never goes down. Um, you know, look every everywhere in the else in the world, two thousand eight, two thousand nine collapsed, but Vancouver went down. You know, ten percent and back up. And so this has created this. Basically, we're now into a twenty year bull market where prices never really drop. Everybody becomes a millionaire, and so people are comfortable. Even if you make, you know. $100,000 a year, you're comfortable taking on massive amounts of debt to get into the housing market because everybody's created their wealth through that. Right. Um, and I think that's created this this uh, environment for, of course, it's a global city. So everyone else is looking at it and saying, oh my gosh, like Vancouver, it's clearly like a safe haven. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, prices never really go down. And then we had the, you know, massive Chinese uh credit expansion, the large, single largest credit expansion in financial history, uh, a lot of that money poured out into not just Vancouver, but global property markets in 15, 16. Sure. And in my opinion, uh, that started the started the next up leg 
in this housing market. So starting in 2015, that money came in, sort of got the market going, particularly at the high end. Mm-hmm. And then everybody looked around and says, oh my gosh, this thing's going. And that basically gave the locals an excuse to leverage up and and join the party. Right. And so that was kind of started. And so the developers, um, you know, they looked at it and says, okay, like it's re- reactionary. They see the market taking off. They instantly start buying land, building, trying right. to jam thing. So now it's funny because like we're seeing um, all this supply that we've been building. We have a record number of units under construction. A lot of that actually hasn't hit the market because it's such a long drawn out process here in Vancouver to get developments off the ground and actually built. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, the developers are basically reacting to sort of the market conditions. And so you can't really build supply fast enough to really keep up with like the demand, right? I mean, right. as I always say, to simplify, I mean, banks can create credit a lot faster than developers can build new homes. Right. Okay. What about the what I was saying in terms of we've been building basically the wrong type of supply, that it was disproportionately focused on one end of the market and perhaps not that. We heard that phrase, the missing middle, a lot. Is there truth to that? Uh, Yeah, 100%. Um, This has actually been a problem, not just in Vancouver, I mean, particularly in Vancouver, but it's been a problem actually uh, across large parts of the world, Mm -hmm. um, including the United States. So basically developers... um, I think it has a large part to do with the financial crisis and this this widening wealth inequality mm-hmm. that people are struggling to keep up and the people that are getting ahead are getting further and further ahead. And so developers are continuously basically targeting luxury um, development because that's where all the margins are. Mm-hmm. And particularly from that huge uh, expansion of wealth out of China is there's this demand for this luxury product and this again, so I think that's definitely a strong point. I think today we still have a huge affordability problem in Vancouver, and developers have been building um, luxury product for the most part. What is the role of China in terms of our housing affordability or unaffordability crisis? Because you hear some people that solely blame China. And then you hear the other side, which say, no, they had minimal impact, 2 to 5% impact on the market. Where do you see their influence in terms of our, our market? Uh, I think it was significant in 15, 16, mm-hmm. and you know, maybe parts of 17 to really, I think, again, I think it got the party started. Okay. And I think it definitely played a significant role. I know that the, you know, the industry likes to downplay it. Um, but I also would say too, and I think the industry downplays it and I think the public upplays it. I think that they sure, say, yeah. the only reason why I can't afford a home is because of like these wealthy foreigners coming in and bidding up my real estate. But Vancouver mm-hmm. was always expensive. And I don't think all you have to do is look and say, Canadian households are the most indebted in the G20. So, right. cl- so clearly they're borrowing money. Yeah. So clearly they're partly to blame for the rise in home prices. Well, I mean, you could you could argue that the banks are lending them too much money. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if your income is stagnant, so that's like, and house prices are rising 20, 30% per year, the only way to afford that home is to take on more leverage. Sure, yeah. And so again, all you have to do is look at the household debt statistics in Canada and clear and in, in Vancouver and clearly it's like okay well households are boring so clearly there's some locals here that are leveraging up and I think a lot of that again has been spurred by some of the offshore investment f- without a doubt mm-hmm. uh, but yeah as we've seen that uh, that sort of 
Chinese outflow expansion of China has has slowed significantly, and not just in Vancouver, but uh, across the world. Sure. We will get to the household debt bubble, as we sort of had talked about before the podcast in a little bit, but I have a few more questions before we get there. Based on all of this, on where we are in the market today, what are Vancouver's supply needs? Because you're in an, in an interesting position where you're on the ground, you're trying to find people homes effectively, and you're also taking a macro level analysis when you when you look at this. So when you look at everything, what does Vancouver need to build or does it need to build? Uh, I truthfully am a pretty big fan of purpose-built rental. Mm-hmm. Um, I it's, think it's not a scam to bail not, out uh, developers. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm not necessarily convinced that they should necessarily be getting a whole lot of handouts. Sure. Um, it's challenging because, yeah, the land is, is it's, it's, it's priced extremely high and the construction yeah. costs are extremely elevated because we're, we're basically building at capacity, right? That's why mm-hmm. every single project is one year delayed and construction costs are through the roof because we're building like crazy and there's a shortage. Sure. So it's like, you know, you can't have it both ways. Um, but yeah, I think I'm a big fan of purpose-built rentals. I think there's like, there's, you know, there's naturally or oddly a, a weird stigma around renting. And, sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think that we don't, I think Canadians need more options. Mm-hmm. Like I just look at it and say, well, I understand why people want to buy. At least when I work with my clients, they're like, I'm kind of tired of renting. I don't know if my landlord's going to sell next year. I've already been, you know, evicted a couple times or yeah. whatever. And I think at least with a purpose-built rental, it's like you're in a you're in this rental building. You don't have to worry about some guy selling it next year. You can actually sort of lay your roots down and have more secure housing. Exactly. To yeah. me, I think that takes at least some of the pressure off of like the resale market. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a pretty big proponent of that, and I still think, yeah, obviously entry-level affordable product. So. Um, yeah, I don't know if a detached house is ever going to be affordable, even if we have like this significant downturn here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, building, you know, building downtown at uh, $3,000 a square foot and selling it <laughs> offshore. I mean, is that really going to help? I'm I'm not as big of a fan as the, of that product as say somebody that builds a low to mid-rise wood frame construction building in East Van. Mm-hmm. That's mostly all going to be fully occupied yeah. and fully put to use as opposed to a, a luxury high-rise building at 3,000 a foot. Sure. Because that's like, you've just paid 3,000 a foot. Do you really want to rent it out to some guy for <laughs> 2,600 bucks a month? No, like, you'd rather pay the, the empty homes tax, right? Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> or figure a way around it or, or whatever. You, you pointed out to me that, uh, I think it was RBC, they, they had an analysis where they said that Vancouver's overbuilding do you think that's true? And, and if you don't think that's true, why do you think RBC has come to that conclusion? Uh, I think that we are arguably overbuilding in the short term. Okay. But I think in the long term, or like if we want like long term affordability, mm-hmm. then of course we need to do our best to try to keep uh, housing construction moving forward. Um, like we've always had a low vacancy rate here. Yeah. Um, but I think as I look at it right now, I'm like, okay, well, you know, condo prices are down 10 to 15%. Um, inventory is growing quite quickly, and we have 44,000 units under construction, which is an all-time record high by a long shot. Wow. And then we also have housing starts are still 
if they're not at all-time highs, they're just under all-time highs. Mm-hmm. So how's it, like the, we have a lot of, basically what I'm saying is we have a lot of supply that's coming down the pipe. And is it mostly that market condo supply that's coming, yeah, coming say, online? Yeah, I would say a lot of it is, is condo development. Mm-hmm. Most of it's apartments. Sure. Um, so yeah, like, I mean, you can see like single family housing starts have dropped off exponentially because there's not really much demand for a brand new single family house that's going to have a price tag of $3 million. Sure. Yeah. Today. <laughs> like that, that market's kind of come and gone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think once this, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, right now we're kind of in this weird period where we had sort of, to start the year, we had a 20 year low in home sales and, and everyone's looking saying, oh my gosh, there's all the supply that's still coming to, I mean, good, good for buyers mm-hmm. and good for, I think this market needs some relief. Mm-hmm. So I guess it kind of depends on your view, but I think, um, yeah, definitely building, definitely got a lot coming down the pipeline. Yeah. Enough of this PBR and the missing middle housing, do you think? Or do we still need more of that? Is it still disproportional to the high-end market condos? I think I think we could definitely use more. <laughs> okay. I, I, but I, you know what's interesting? I, I, I had a – like this is literally – and I, I, I study and I pay for a lot of research. Even I look at the U.S. housing market a lot and they're facing – even though they had this huge drawdown in like – prices, they're mm-hmm. still having affordability problems at the entry level. Yeah. And so I was speaking with one of the largest uh, home builders in Oklahoma uh, last week. And he says, you know, I said, how's the Oklahoma market? He says, dead. And I was like, oh, so, you know, you're not doing too well. He's like, no, but he's like, we're doing amazing because we're only, we were the, one of the only builders that focuses and has actually been building entry level single family homes. Mm. He says, everybody else has been building luxury. Yeah. And he says, there's there's just this demand. I mean, you have to look at the U.S. is like prices have somewhat recovered from, from the financial crisis. Mortgage rates are at all-time, almost at all-time lows, basically. Mm-hmm. And there's still, everyone's still sort of struggling with, with housing affordability. So this is like a, this is not just a Vancouver problem. This is, I think it's it is a global problem. Okay. Is, is housing prices are grossly outstripping wages. Yeah, yeah. And so that's that's why I always look at it and say, well, is the whole world not building enough housing, <laughs> or is there something a little bit more that's happening here? Yeah. So so let's get into that because when we first started corresponding, you were telling me that you know this isn't so much a housing bubble, but it's a household debt bubble. Can you walk me through this? And again, in very digestible terms and, and explanations. <laughs> okay. So I'll try to put it in somewhat layman's terms, uh, bear with me. So this is part of the challenge that I have with, with some of the industry that, you know, and I get it from a developer's standpoint. Again, we, I do agree that we need more supply, but, um, the argument that like this rise in prices, so we saw prices in Vancouver jump 30 to 40% annually for the last, you know, for about a two year window. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not just cause like all of a sudden, like overnight, like there was just a shortage of supply. It was basically because we had this demand that came in and and through credit. So basically, if you look at it from a finance perspective, is all sort of bubbles are created through an excess of credit and okay. through, through leverage, basically excess leverage. So that, that credit can come through, through foreign credit flows coming into your market, such as China. Mm-hmm. And it can also then come domestically through um, locals leveraging up and taking on a lot of debt. 
And that's basically banks being willing to lend people money. Banks being willing to lend. So there's a very strong correlation. There's a bunch of um, academics and economists that have put out work on this. There's been books written on it, Mm -hmm. um, some of which CMHC's uh, CEO has discussed. And that's part of the reason that he actually brought in the mortgage stress test is that the growth in mortgage credit follows very closely the growth in home prices. Okay. So- as long as mortgage credit is growing and as long as banks are lending and people are willing to borrow, home prices will continue to rise. So that makes sense. There's yeah. a very strong correlation basically between the amount of credit that is borrowed and home prices. Yeah. And so that's a much stronger factor than like are we like how many homes are being built. Yeah. And, and, and that j- just intuitively makes sense because the more money that's out there, money being credit to buy homes, the demand for homes – effectively increase exactly right? so like it's like all you have to do is like look at uh where we are today right so we're at post financial crisis like the amount of new money that has been created you have all this money that's been created the money supply mm-hmm. has been has expanded exponentially right and you have these ultra low negative or low interest rates mm-hmm. and it's all looking for somewhere to go and so there's there's such an abundance of money out there, whether you're looking into real estate or private equity or startups, mm-hmm. all this money, Bitcoin, like there's all this sure. money just chasing these assets. And yeah. so it's like you, you just can't physically build to keep up with all that money. And so uh, banks have been lending a lot of money in, in, Vancouver, in Canada. That's why I get, we get back to the debt, the debt uh, bubble mm-hmm. is that uh, – Household debt to GDP is, is I think, it's 100% of GDP. Uh, Canada, Canadian households are the most indebted of the G20. Wow. More than the U.S., more, more than, than the U.S. Because the U.S., Europe. like, these guys all went through de- deleveraging phases. Right. So okay. Canada and Australia are, like, the two that really stand out as, like, these households that, like, have this egregious amount of debt and these really high home prices. And it's just been going on for so long that everyone's like, okay, well, like, yeah, you say it's going to happen. And so that's why you get a lot of like the, the U.S. pundits and hedge fund guys. They, they look at Canada and say, you guys are crazy. Like, look at how much debt there is. But like, it just hasn't really gone off yet. Mm-hmm. And my concern is not so much like it's like a, like there's like a home price bubble or whatever. It's just there's clearly a debt bubble. We have so much debt here. Yeah. And if like if interest rates were even like we saw already like the stress, like as soon as interest rates got up a little bit, like people were like pulled out of the housing market. Yeah. <laughs> There's all this talk about like this, this things are going to blow up and like interest rates are still below 2%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, if interest rates were to ever normalize, like there would be a huge problem. And, and I mean, it looks like there's not going to be a normalization in interest rates, but. So when you have a high debt to GDP ratio, when you have high household debt, is that the primary worry that if interest rates go up, you'll effectively be bankrupt? You can't make those payments anymore. Yeah, basically. It's like there's not enough cash flow to service your your debts. Right. So basically like what Canadians have done, like what's happening is people just – so it's funny because people always come back and they say, well, look at the foreclosure rate. It's so low in Canada. Nobody Exactly, ever, yeah. But it's like – how do you default if home prices only go in one direction? They go up for 20 <laughs> straight years. You have like small dips here and there for six months yeah. and then they go back up. So what happens is if you're in, if you're in, in a debt problem, all you do is refinance your debt, mm-hmm. you know, refinance your home, yeah, extend out your payments and you're good and you just keep moving on. And so that's basically what's happening here, right? Is you have these 
20-year bull market, prices are rising, uh, mom and dad are, are tapping into the equity of their home to go on vacation, buy the car, mm-hmm. buy the buy the pre-sale condo, sure. help Johnny out with his first-time purchase. And so this is all basically predicated on home prices continuing to grow and the debts continuing to grow. Right. Uh, but at some point, if there is any sort of financial shock or recession, um, those debts are going to be very hard to service. So- where are we in this household debt bubble then? It's the, the getting the timing right is like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, I don't, I would, there's been so many like famous guys, like the guys that, uh, that, that made hundreds of millions of dollars in the big short. Sure. Yeah. They've actually, it's like some of them have actually placed bets on like, you know, Canadian banks and basically shorting like our market on the premise that these household, this household debt bubble will blow up. Right. And they've had, some of them had those bets since 2013. Right. And so this thing just continues to go and go and go and go. And so I think getting the timing of that is, is nearly impossible. It's certainly, it's reaching a point now to, it's reaching a point now where how much more can the debt grow Mm -hmm. given that interest rates have very little room to go lower. Exactly, right? So we're kind of reaching that point where interest rates can't really stimulate borrowing much more. Um, you have the Bank of Canada right now at 1.75%. So they got 175 basis points to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a problem. And you can see that in some of the uh, indicators. So uh, you can see the growth of household debt in Canada and the growth of residential mortgage debt in Canada is growing at basically... Uh, residential mortgage is growing at a 20-year low, mm-hmm. and uh, household uh, debt is growing at a 30-year low. Okay. So it's like there's that you can't like it's hard to grow when like you're already at this. You have so much debt, and you can barely lower interest rates anymore. It's hard to stimulate. Yeah. And so that's where like it's, it's going to be interesting because where all these economies are going to, uh, you know, zero and negative interest rates. And you look at Japan, Japan's been doing that for 20 years. Japan's had negative interest rates for 20 years after their, <laughs> after their housing bubble blew up. And they house prices have still not recovered there in, in 20 years. I'm not saying that's going to happen here in Canada, mm-hmm. but it just becomes a point where these negative interest rates, you, just, you can't necessarily get stimulation out of them. And I guess that's the big worry if we were to have a global recession again. Where a lot of these economies before, like in 2008, 2009, they lowered interest rates to try to stimulate the economy. There was quantitative easing. But in this case, there's a lot less room to to play those tools, right? Yeah. There's like, I mean, there's going to be certain things that they're doing or they're going to try to do. I mean, yeah. They're going to bring rates to zero and they'll probably uh, try to re restart uh, quantitative easing. Hmm. Um, people are talking about like an all-out monetization of debts or debt jubilees where we forgive your debts. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. That's sort of the conversations that are beginning to happen. Yeah. Um, not just, not, not in Canada, but, but globally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, for me, that's just like a fascination that I'm looking at. I'm like, okay, well, you know, how does it start to impact housing, um, et cetera, right? So I think that, uh, yeah, it's definitely a, a fascinating space. So based on all of this and including the fact that household debt doesn't have a ton of more room to grow in this country. Is it safe to say that within a year, we're going to have a serious problem on our hands in Canada and Vancouver? 
again, I don't know about the timing. Okay, maybe um, not the timing, but, but I, I the think logical I, progression. Like, eventually, I, this has to give. Yeah, and it's it's like it's you know it's interesting. It's like this isn't like a secret. Like the Bank of Canada talks about this all the time in their monetary <laughs> reports. Like, you know, economists talk about it like in their notes. It's like everybody knows like that Canada has like this household debt problem. It's just like, but we just kind of keep trying to like paper over it and like just kind of hope that this will sort of figure itself out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think again, it's kind of reaching this point where okay, we're clearly going to end. We're entering a rate cutting cycle here. The Bank of Canada will start cutting rates probably pretty pretty soon here. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see if that's going to be enough to to stave off a recession. Mm-hmm. And then, because I think the problem is really going to be for households is if there's a rise in unemployment, if people get laid off, then all of a sudden it becomes hard to service your $900,000 mortgage investment. For sure, yeah. Right? Because like what happens like right now, as I see, is you have a lot of um, young couples that, you know, they want, they grew up here, they want to stay here, whatever. They're earning a local income, which in Vancouver, I mean, the incomes aren't great. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have two people working very hard. Um, they try to save up enough of down payment. Maybe they leverage some of their equity in the market and move up and buy the house. But the, ultimately, they have two people working very hard to service a mortgage. So mm-hmm. if you get this, you know, potential recession and a rise in unemployment, but what if like one spouse even goes from full time to part time? Yeah. And you're trying to, you know, trying to feed two kids. So I think that's the the, the problem or the catalyst or like that like that concerns me is like I I hope obviously the you know the economy remains rock solid, mm-hmm. um, but I worry that you know given the amount of indebtedness and that we've had basically ten years now without a recession that we're probably due for one, mm-hmm. and ho- hopefully we have enough ammo the Bank of Canada to cut rates and try to stimulate and get us out of one. Sure. What would you tell to that hypothetical family with two kids and they're servicing their mortgage, but they're pretty much up to their eyeballs. They can't even take a a pay cut or, as you said, go from have one of the people go from full time to part time. What would you tell them to do in this market right now? Uh, well, I mean, are you asking if like, they're looking to buy? Like, should they buy sort of thing? Well, well or let's like, say they have we... a mortgage right okay. now. And they're, like I said, they're kind of up to their eyeballs in this scenario that you gave. And they have two kids and they can't really afford to lose one of the, their salaries. What do you do in that position, knowing that perhaps this storm is is coming? I would say it's funny because, like, you look at well, – that's not really funny, but it's like you, CIBC put out uh, a chart like a couple weeks ago showing that uh, – the household savings rate in Canada mm-hmm. is the lowest since 1961. Yeah, because it's being spent on yeah. your mortgage and your rent. It was and- like, <laughs> like, so, like, literally, like, you're like looking, you're like, okay, 10 year economic expansion, uh, interest rates like dirt cheap, um, like <laughs> inverted yield curves, economy clearly slowing down, um, and nobody's saving any money. So, like, everything is priced for perfection. Yeah. It's like, so if I was, if I'm advising families, I'd just say, hey, listen, you know what? Like, I would say start saving up some money. Sure. Put a little bit aside. Yeah. Um, you know, no need to panic, obviously. Like, but mm-hmm. like, yeah, hey, just save some money. Like, maybe, you know, maybe don't take out a home equity line of credit this year. Yeah, fair enough. You know, maybe just be a little bit more cautious, build up a little bit of money. You know, it's like, don't stop spending because then you'll really shove us into a recession either. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of maybe maybe not the time to to load up on the you know second or third home and and try to speculate on a presale. Mm-hmm. I want to get into presales, 
and I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but interpreting a lot of what you've said about the pre-sale market, I feel like you're kind of, and I, and I and I mean this in a very good way because I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I feel like you're chicken little and the sky is falling when it comes to the pre-sale market. I've listened to you and a, and a couple of others, but mostly you, and I'm, I've told anyone who would listen that, you know, they should reconsider getting to the pre-sale market. Apparently, it's going to be a bloodbath. What's happening in that market? Is it as bad as maybe I've interpreted it? Uh, I don't know if I'd say it's going to be a bloodbath, but it's a space <laughs> that I'm watching with very a lot of fascination. Yeah. Um, so basically what was happening was um, the market was going up a lot. Yeah. So everybody, we had a speculative mania, right? Everybody just like, I had my clients, they're like, well, multiple offers. I just got to outbid this guy. And so we saw at the pre-sales center, you know, people were sending up tents. And yeah, they're camping out. Camping out for like, like that's just like, let's call it what it is. Like, it's not like normal, healthy behavior. Like that's <laughs> just like, okay, like relax. Yeah. Fanaticism. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you so, would line up for your favorite band in the world or it, not to necessarily buy real estate. <laughs> right. But I mean, when you go back and you look at like sort of like financial history and like sort of like euphoric bubbles and you're just like, mm-hmm. that's like one of the stories you hear about like people like camping out for a couple of days to get like a pre-sale con, like an unfinished con. Yeah. So anyways, long story short is, um, you know, the, the prices were going up. So developers were basically charging, I would say typically on average, you know, 15 to 20% above market value. So mm-hmm. as an example, if you could buy a finished condo today that was maybe one year old um, for like $1,100 a square foot, mm-hmm. uh, the developers would be like, we'll, we'll charge you 1400 because, you know, when this condo completes in two and a half years, the market will go up, mm-hmm. you, you know, you'll be happy. We all make money. Yeah. Life's good. And also the, one of the big sales was you can sell it that option to someone else. Because oh. basically a pre-sale is like an option, right? Yeah. So you can sell that option to someone else at a higher price if before the condo is even built. So and you can was, make money just on that option. Yeah, exactly. And that was like a huge thing. Like I had clients personally call me and be like, hey, I want to buy the, like pre-sale. What do you think? Oh, and by the way, I actually don't want to close on it. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, hmm. I mean, it, it has worked and it did work yeah. beautifully uh, for those that were speculating on them. But I think now we're at this point of the market cycle where those assignments have become very liquid. Mm-hmm. Um, people just aren't interested. They have options. It's, a, it's I would argue, the condo market. It's a buyer's market. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking at and saying, well, I don't want your assignments. So now these people that maybe didn't have the financing to actually close on these condos are going to have to close on them or they're going to have to try to close on them. Um, things have changed uh, with mortgages. Obviously, the stress test has come in. Mm-hmm. So people bought prior to the stress test. Um, so that's changed that. I mean, obviously a lot of it's going to depend on their jobs. You know, sometimes your jobs can change again, heaven forbid you don't get like laid off or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, but my main concern is looking at the pre-sale market, let's just say the condo market stays flat. Um, well, if you paid $1,400 a square foot and the market today is still at 1100 a foot, when you go to close, the banks will reappraise your mortgage or reappraise your unit. Okay. Yeah. So the banks, when you go to close, let's say you bought this thing and 2016, and let's say it's ready in 2020, the banks will then go and look at it and say, okay, what's the market doing today? Okay, you paid 1400 a foot. Well, to be honest, it's only worth 1100 mm-hmm. or $1,200. we will give you a mortgage based on that value. 
So now you have like this shortfall where you're going to have to come up with that excess cash. And so how many right. people have, you know, 50, 100, $150,000 lying around? So effectively the, whatever the projected worth of the condo is going to be, they they look at that, but then they see the real price, which is below that. And they say, okay, that difference, actually you have to pay that entire difference in order to qualify for a mortgage. Exactly. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. That so, is scary to me. There's only one company, as far as I understand, is RBC will do a pre a firm approval on all pre-sales. Oh, okay. And they'll guarantee you that no matter what happens, mm-hmm. we'll give you the full amount mortgage. Yeah. Um, they're the only company that I know that that is doing that. And I think majority of people that buy pre-sales have no idea that that program exists. Oh, okay. Um, so, and I, I think you're right because I was first introduced to this. I was at a house party in Surrey, and I was talking to a realtor there, and we got into this. Apparently, it's the hottest topic in Metro Vancouver. But we were talking about real estate, and she was telling me how she suddenly had in that month. I think it was like February. She had three clients forced to walk away from a pre-sale, and she said they had no idea. They were in there, you know, measuring out things. And then suddenly, they were gone. Like they couldn't, they couldn't get approved for a mortgage because of the exact scenario that you just described. And I have friends who have gotten into pre-sales. I think they're okay. But when I told them this, they had no idea that you would have to make up the difference. Yeah, is that common? No, I don't think very many people know it. I, I would argue that probably I think there's a good chunk of realtors that don't know that. So when you first go to the bank. And you say, okay, I'm getting this pre-sale. Because you have to get pre-approved or, or whatever, right? No? Well, no. You don't. I mean, the, the developer doesn't care if you're pre-approved. Oh, okay. So the, as the developer says, as long as I get my, you know, whatever they ask, usually it's anywhere from 10 to 20%. As the developer says, as long as you give me, you know, my 20% worth of deposits, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't care. I've, I got your 20%. You want to walk away? Great. Right. Fine. So be it. Uh, so the developer doesn't really care. They don't really check your financing. But a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll, they'll maybe get pre-approved. Mm-hmm. But a pre-approval is not a firm approval. Do you think the banks are doing a good enough job in terms of communicating that? I don't know. A part of my concern too is like I put, I agree, but I also put some of the onus back on that buyer because what happens is in the pre-sale centers too is that a lot of buyers they just go in to the pre-sale center without any representation. So they didn't say not representation like you, right? They, well, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean. Like they'll just yeah. say they they go in. And it's like a beautiful, fancy, like shiny uh, pre-sale center, and yeah. all the units look amazing. And you know the sales staff is so nice and friendly, and they say, "Oh, okay, I'll get this condo twenty percent down. Sure, done, sign." Like they, so, they have no representation. They don't really understand what they're buying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's where some of these problems begin to arise. Yeah. It seems to me that the key issue with pre-sales is that it's completely premised upon the market continuing to go up, not flatlining, not coming down. And everyone is sort of under this assumption that this is all that the market's going to do is go up and up and up. And whether it is, you know, the ultimately it is the buyer's responsibility to know what they're getting into, but they also get you know, mesmerized in this world where no one's even bringing up that option. Like, hey, here's a risk 
in terms of buying this property. Well, I think, you know, it's funny is like, cause I think there was a day when, and it wasn't too long ago when developers would like a pre-sale would be less than like a, like a normal finished unit. Oh, okay. So like developers used to offer you like the incentive and like, you know, hey, you can buy that for a thousand. Well, hey, you can buy ours for 950. Be ready in a couple of years. Right. And maybe we'll- Because they're uh, trying to get the financing to build the thing. Yeah, exactly. Right? And there wasn't that speculative element. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a speculative element where basically, you know, I mean, the land prices were rising exponentially and yeah. to even make some of these projects work, you had to charge like a certain price. And so even the developers were speculating- on the land and on the pre-sale market saying, okay, well, I can pay X for the land, assuming that the condo market goes up and I'll be able to pre-sell at this price and make my money. Right. But so everything is, <laughs> everything has basically been predicated on like rising prices, right? So now we're, that's what I'm saying is like, it's like even like the prices like almost don't even have to really go down. It's like, even if they move sideways, there's going to be some, some issues. Yeah. I'm not saying like, this is like the sky's falling, like it's over, but I'm just... It's one of the spaces that I'm watching very closely because even um, I think it's well known that real estate and construction in BC make up like 25% of GDP. Mm-hmm. So it's like even to have like a slowdown in like new construction and in the real estate space, I mean, there's going to be some knock-on effects. Yeah. As a macro economist, I mean, in terms of your point of view, what, I remember when I was going to school, I always learned that housing starts and the housing market was an indicator in terms of how well your economy was doing. But here in Vancouver, real estate is the economy. Is that healthy? It is the economy. And then, I mean... Is that healthy, though? Because it used to be in the old traditional school of thought, indicative of what how well your economy is doing. Right, right. In terms of people are people have money, people are are spending money. They're they're buying bigger homes. They're getting into construction, whatever. But now it's just like it, it is the economy here. Well, I mean, I think that comes down to. I feel like that's like specifically in Vancouver, that's very much the case. Mm-hmm. But I feel like even like again, like globally, that's the case. I feel like there's been okay. like like there's been the financialization of housing, mm-hmm. and that's because of like you know the intricate you know, financial system that we've built and, you know, the the fact that, you know, mortgage-backed securities exist and the growth in that space that allows basically banks to package up and then sell these securities and then continue to create more and more new loans. Right. Right? So it's like, you know what I mean? Like, okay, you think about it. It's like, this is very like, all you have to do is go back and look at like the normal case back in like the 70s or whatever, like when you're, you know, when your parents bought housing or whatever, Mm -hmm. it's like, you'd probably borrow two times your income. Right. Maybe three. Yeah. Like now it's like you're borrowing seven times. <laughs> so it's like, is, is anyone surprised that like housing's more expensive? It's like you're leveraging your income seven times. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think you could argue that maybe it's a little bit lower now with the stress test, but there's no doubt. Like, I think that comes down to like the finance. Yeah. So you get back to your original question. Um, yeah, I think housing is the business cycle mm-hmm. and, it, and you know, it is the economy. So there's been a ton of research um, that's been done that basically shows like all you have to do is sort of watch what housing, uh, the two leading indicator, the leading indicator is actually building permits for one. Uh, so you look at building permits, which would basically will show you um, developers' intentions, mm-hmm. and that will be your like leading indicator for the economy. In terms right. Of, you know, housing starts and building permits are sort of the two that uh, you would watch for. 
if someone came to you and they weren't wealthy, but they had some money for a deposit or down payment, and they said, I, I want to get into the pre-sale market today, what would you tell them? In Vancouver, of course. I mean, my first question would be, you know, uh, why? Like, what's your why and what's your motivation? Like, what are your intentions? Like, what's your goal? What what if, what if they say, you know what? I've been saving up money and I just want a new place, and I'm living in my parents' basement for the time being, but I've saved up all this money and uh, I just wanted to buy a new place by the time I'm, you know, whatever age, mm-hmm. and this place will be ready at that that time. Uh, so, I mean, tr- truthfully, like mm-hmm. what I would say first is I would say, first of all, um, okay, have you considered maybe a presale assignment? Um, I could probably find you someone that is desperate to let one go mm. and we could probably get a nice little discount. Yeah. Um, but I says, you know, if that's, if you want to ultimately go the presale route and go to the presale center and put down a deposit, like. I'm not going to talk you out of it and tell you you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to say if you want the best price, if that's what's most important for you, yeah, I could probably try to find someone. Yeah, and you know, someone that's desperate to to dump a presale sign. There's a lot of guys right now. Is there opportunity in that the presale assignments? Yeah, yeah, I think there's there's quite a bit of opportunity. Um, there's some definitely as we've talked about. There's some stress in that market. I don't think it's really like that bad right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's definitely some people that are in tough spots that need to get out. Yeah. Um, it all again. It ultimately comes down to what what that person paid for. So for an example, right? It's like if the developers we talked about earlier were charging like premiums of you know say twenty percent above market value because everyone thought the market was going to rise. Well, if this guy's only going to pre uh, you know assign it to you at what he paid or maybe a five percent discount, then you could argue you know you're still technically ten or fifteen percent probably maybe overpaying. Sure. But yeah, anyways, long story hmm. short is I've seen some assignment sales um, that have sold. Like, I mean, look at the the Vancouver house, the one that's being built and mm-hmm. almost finished. Like people were dumping assignments there, you know, three or four months ago at some of them below cost. Wow. And that those were pre-sold 2014. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, that's like kind of a rare case because I know like West Bank kind of shut off their, their assignments there, but mm-hmm. there were some that were being sort of like, liquidated basically okay because i mean you have to look at it too is like i can see why i mean that building was pre-sold in 2014 a lot of it offshore mm-hmm. um you have a 20 percent foreign buyer tax now for some of those buyers yeah so it's like do you pay the 20 percent tax on completion or you just sort of sell it now maybe at like a break even yeah yeah that makes sense so it sounds like there are still opportunities in the market and some really good deals in little pockets as well. If you had a first-time home buyer, just your average first-time home buyer, I would assume maybe late 20s, early 30s, maybe they've just started a family, what would your advice be to them? Um, so I actually have had my advice to them. I've had a lot of like some of my most bearish clients this year. Mm-hmm. Like pessimistic clients. Oh yeah, and you still got them to get some yeah, property. Some of them, yeah. No, it's like some of them. I'm like, like I'm like, oh, like, and some of these guys are actually like pretty smart, like financially. Like mm-hmm. actually, like some of them will actually manage money mm-hmm. um, for a living, and they're like, they're like, yeah, you know what? Like, I, I feel like the housing market could probably go down further, but you know, at the end of the day, it's down twenty percent, and mortgage rates are cheap, and I'm kind of tired of renting, and I have two kids with a third on the way. Mm-hmm, exactly. So yeah. it's like, you know what? I'm not going to sit here on the sidelines for the next, you know, one to two years 
or whatever to try to time the absolute bottom. Mm-hmm. I, I'm getting a 20% discount. I negotiated a good price here. And this is going to be my family home for the next 15 years. Yeah. To me, that like that makes sense. Like, I get it. Is it that timeline that makes it a little safer where you're like, I'm not planning to sell within the next five years. I'm oh. going to live here for 10, 15 years. I, I think the timeline is everything. Okay. Like today. So yeah. it's like, you know what I mean? Like if you came to me and like, yeah, obviously this is easy to say in hindsight. Like, yeah. You <laughs> want to buy a pre-sale in like 20, you know, 2014, 2015. I'm like, oh, let's go. Yeah. Um, sure. But yeah, I look at it today. It's like, well, if you're going to look, I think the market is is definitely like volatile or it's at least it still looks to me like there's going to be some volatility in there. Yeah. Um, so I think if you're speculating on real estate and trying to like, hey, I'm going to buy this condo and then in three years time, I'm going to take that equity and leverage up to a detached house. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think that's like the greatest idea. Yeah, that's not a good plan. Because yeah, I don't know where the market's going to be in three years. So because like my concern is like people are buying like say, well, I'm going to buy this like really small one bedroom mm-hmm. that like I don't really like. The suicide suite. Yeah, the suicide suite. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm going to buy it because like, you know, I just need to get into the market, build some equity, and then I'll like, you know, leverage that up into what I actually want. Mm-hmm. And it's like, to me, that seems very risky and probably a bad decision. Sure. But if you're going to look for the family home, like you're looking for the you know, detached house, the fenced yard, and you're planning to be there for the next 10 to 15 years, like you'll be just fine. Yeah. Now I need to ask you for personal investment advice, mm-hmm. if you'll indulge me. So I'm in a unique position. I own my condo outright. I'm not paying a mortgage. It's mine. And now I'm looking to buy an investment property. So basically another condo that I would rent out. I told this to a few people I know that have similar investment properties, and they all told me to save my money and to wait for two years because right now even that market is not profitable. And it didn't make sense to me intuitively because I'm looking at a very low vacancy rate, and I am seeing some good deals out there in the condo market as well. What would your recommendation be for someone like me? Yeah, I think that uh, I think there's going to be some more opportunities. Yeah. So what I would say to you is like I wouldn't feel rushed or pressured or trying to like jump on something to yeah. get something done. I think there's going to be some opportunities here moving forward in the next one to two years. Okay. Um, but more so like not to say that, hey you need to wait, but like if you're going to go and pull the trigger like you know tomorrow or in the next couple months, just like negotiate like hell like just try to find someone that needs to sell, grind them down mm-hmm. and you can get like a really good, you know, discount. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you might, you're probably not, or you might not be hitting bottom. Yeah. But right. I think that you're going to be negotiating something again, if you have that 10 to, you know, 10 year outlook on that and you're like trying to build like a long-term like wealth, this is like me trying to store capital and, and, you know, preserve and build something. Mm-hmm. Then to me, like, yeah, you know, I, I get it. It makes sense. And I would say you can go for it. But at the same time, it's like, I just don't feel like there's going to be, I think people are thinking like, oh, there's this Hong Kong exodus and it's Vancouver and there's going to be like this V-shaped recovery sure. and prices are going up like 20% next year. And it's like, I just don't see it. Yeah. I'm curious. I, again, I don't want to take this question the wrong way. You speak in a very frank way. You don't come off as the stereotypical real estate agent. And I don't even know if that stereotypical real estate agent exists, but the idea that people have of real estate agents in their mind and you do seem to have a much more balanced approach and you're not just saying, oh, today's a great day to buy anything and everything. <laughs> do you ruffle feathers in this industry? 
I do. Yeah. Uh, and I'm truthfully trying to like record, like you know, dial it back a little bit. Sure. Because um, I think that uh, you know you, you got to make friends with people, and even though you might not share the same viewpoints, mm-hmm. um, I don't think it does a whole lot of service. But I do like to, and I think I always will sort of call out BS when I when I see it. Yeah. Um, or at least when I'm asked about it. Um, but yeah, I think for me, like, again, as we've talked about, it's, it's my whole philosophy is, is really about building brand. And I think that you have to do that through authenticity. Mm -hmm. And I take that extremely seriously. Um, you know, you talked about my newsletter at the beginning of the show. I don't look at all the names that are on there, but I certainly see some of the people that subscribe to it. And some of them are policymakers. Some oh, really? Them, some hmm. of them are... Um, is it free, by the way? It is free. Okay, there so you go. So policymakers. Like, some of them are in charge of hundreds of billions of dollars in mortgages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I can see those names on there. And so, if, like, for me, I have to basically, when I write my newsletter, I'm like, okay, well, this person's going to read it, this person's going to read it. Like, it has to be real. It has to be full of value. Mm-hmm. And it can't be just like my view and my bias that like this thing's going to crash. And it's like, no, I'm literally just trying to like look at the data. Here's what I'm finding interesting this week. Right. This is thought provoking. And that hope that these people, they find value in that and they continue to read it every week. Mm-hmm. But if I feel like I'm just like spewing this like, you know, these views and this you know, like false information, then it's like there would be no reason for those people to subscribe. Yeah. No, fair enough. So that's why I take, I take basically long story short is I, I take like my audience very, very seriously. And I think that's a priority for me. Sure. Can you be my real estate agent to help me find this <laughs> investment property that I'm looking for? Sure. Yeah, I'd be ha- <laughs> happy to help you. I liked what you a- said about grinding down the seller. So I've, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been this uh, bearish glorified buyer's agent now. I, I, I truthfully find it. I don't know. I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a geek for that. So I look. I like looking for deals. Okay. All right. We'll talk after. How do people follow you? How do they keep up to date with your analysis? How do they sign up for your newsletter? Uh, most active on Twitter, mm-hmm. at Steve Soretsky. Um, also very active, yeah, on the newsletter. So you can just go to my website, stevesoretsky.com. Uh, there's like a tab where you can subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, it gets sent out uh, once a week every Monday morning. And uh, I also do a weekly like YouTube show. Oh, you do? Which, okay. Yeah, which is at Steve Stretsky. That's yeah, it seems to be quite popular, and the comments are always very entertaining. <laughs> okay, cool. I have to check that out. I missed that in my research of you. But yeah, I'll, no, uh, no, I'll it's, check that uh, one out. Yeah, it's people seem to enjoy it. <laughs> sometimes I debate giving it up. Just sure, the comments are very entertaining, to say the least. Well, Steve, I think you've been entertaining in here. This was very enlightening. It made a lot of sense in a space that often doesn't make a lot of sense. It often has contradictory viewpoints. And I feel like I'm going to be just as confused about the market next week, but I'm going to re-listen to some of the points that we were talking about today because uh, the way you outlined it was very clear and straightforward. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. This is uh, an awesome, entertaining conversation. So hopefully uh, we didn't put anyone to sleep. And, no, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, thanks, thanks for having me on. It was awesome. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, he's one of Vancouver's most popular realtors and one of Vancouver's most popular real estate analysts. He is Steve Soretsky. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Peace.